Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Keyboard Kimura podcast here on Province Sports Radio. I am your host, E. Spencer Kite. Joined today, we are taping this on Thursday morning by MMA Fighting's Sean Alshadi, a guy that I wanted to make sure to reach out to to get on this show because not only is he a phenomenal talent, not only is he somebody that I think has a great read on this industry and the things that are happening, but he's a guy that I have shared several what-the-fuck moments with after <laughs> events over the last year, uh, freaking out about things that happened, like Conor McGregor knocking out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds in Las Vegas. So I wanted to get him on to talk about that, his journey into covering this sport, Preview this weekend show. Sean, thank you, man, for, for taking the time and coming on. Oh, absolutely, man. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Like I said, definitely uh, definitely somebody I wanted to have on. Um, definitely somebody like myself that that is rocking almost the dual name thing. The official name is Shaheen Shadi. We've talked about it before. You yeah. use Sean. I am E. Spencer Kite. I go by Spencer. Um for me, it's always been challenging sort of explaining the E and why I use Spencer and no, you don't have to call me E. What has been the process for you? Because I know we've talked about it in the past, like I said, about trying to maybe use your given name more. Yeah. Um, how have you sort of struggled with that, I guess? Well, it, it's weird in my case because so so my dad. Uh, I grew up from an, in an Arabic family, but I grew up in the United States. I was born in the United States, and so my whole entire life, it, it, my brother has the exact same situation. His real name is Ganem, but they called him Ken. They kind of gave us these American <laughs> nicknames to to like. I think the idea was the logic behind it was like make our upbringing easier when you're going through school and get made fun of less and things like that. Right. And so it just kind of it stuck with me through my, my entire life until I got to, you know, I feel like you reach a certain age and you want to kind of embrace your heritage. <laughs> but by the time I got to that point, I was already too deep in this game. To <laughs> my Twitter account is Sean Alshadi. Right. <laughs> so I feel like I'm stuck in this middle ground now where it's like I'd like to commit to the new one, but I can't get Shaheen Alshadi and it's just because someone else has that account. So it's like I'm stuck with, <laughs> with what I got. Okay, so we need to reach out to Shonda Maloney from the UFC to get you that Shaheen Alshadi because she's got powers, man. She finds ways of of getting people off accounts that they're not using. But I understand it completely. I grew up, my full name is Edgar Spencer Kite. Uh, always my entire life have been called Spencer by my parents, by everyone that knows me. The Edgars, when people called me Edgar in in elementary school and growing up, it bothered me. I didn't know that Edgar was my maternal grandfather's name because no one called him Edgar. And then when I came to writing, it was like, I want to give him that recognition as the creative inspiration for me. He was an artist. He was a painter. He was, you know, a, a an at-home inventor, crazy talented guy in terms of that kind of stuff. So I always wanted to do it. But now I'm faced with the like, do I call you E? It bothers it bothers me when people just put Spencer in stuff. Like I think even in the preview for this, the little intro for this podcast, it says with Spencer Kite, and I'm like, man, it's just my byline. Come on, get it right. It's easy. So I can understand the like it's too late to switch. It's too hard to explain. I'm just gonna roll with it. But I also understand the frustration of like I'm trying to give back and and recognize my heritage and and where I come from. Yeah. Why did (laughs) I'm curious, why did the Edgar bother you? 
I didn't know, like I said, I didn't know it was my grandfather's name. If I did, I think I would probably be, I would have been a little more proud of it. And it just, it was a weird name for me. The way I explained it to somebody once was like, when we're kids, we sort of identify, I'm a sports nut. So I always identified with, okay, is there another sports figure out there that I can point to? And if they have that name, I'm good. So when I was growing up, there weren't any famous Edgars that I knew of. There was Edgar Allan Poe. But in fifth grade, you're not all about the Raven. <laughs> so it took a while until like Edgar Martinez came around that I was like, oh, we're good. And it just, I was a weird kid, man. I don't know why it bothered me. It wasn't my name. It wasn't, it, it never felt like my name. So it wasn't something that I identified with. And it's just a weird name when you're growing up in, in small town, Southern Ontario, that kids being kids decide to pick on you for and. And I yeah. had some thin skin and got pretty upset about it. Spent a couple uh, couple quality recesses and lunch hours in the principal's office because of it. Oh, man. <laughs> so we were talking off air, like I said, off the top. One of the, one of the things I wanted to discuss, because it's always interesting to me as a guy that kind of just parachuted into this business by deciding I wanted to start an MMA blog, how people get to where they are now. You are currently... Adam MMA fighting have been for a number of years. I think the first time I remember seeing your byline was on SB Nation. But what was the path for you and, and what led you into writing about combat sports? Oh man, that's a, it, it's a, it's a weird journey, but I feel like all of us kind of have a, a weird journey because this is such a niche sport. Um, I, I was in college, I was, I was going to ASU or Arizona State. And I was, I was doing a lot of, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to write. And I was doing a lot of uh, Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury beats because I, I was kind of able to get an intern job uh, with a local Phoenix uh, website. And I was, so I was able to kind of shadow the Phoenix Suns and shadow the Phoenix Mercury. And I was doing that for quite a while. And it was just not going anywhere, man. <laughs> it was not. It, it's just like, it's such, it's so hard to make inroads on those type of, uh, like MMA, is, I always say MMA is a very weird sport because it's so young. I mean, obviously you have the Dave Meltzers, the guys who have been doing this forever, but those are there are very few of them. And right. That like we are this generation of of writers who are, who are kind of figuring out how to do this as we go along. Like there are no Woody Pages and Bob Ryan in our sport, really, other than Meltzer. Like right, so we are we are kind of that ingrained media. And so it's a, it's a weird space that presents a lot of opportunity for young writers. And, uh, my, my road in was really weird. Like I, um, I was working at the SB nation news desk, which was just like a, a crappy, uh, job late at night, just kind of like filing out different random stories as they would come. And it was late at night. And Al, I remember it exactly. Alistair Overheem dropped out of the, uh, strike force, <laughs> tournament, the heavyweight tournament. Right. And no one on the news news desk staff had any idea who Alistair Overeem even was. <laughs> and I been I mean, I was a guy who's been following this since probably like just staying up until four AM watching some weird stream on my <laughs> right. these crazy shows. And so I was like, Oh man, I could just write this, it's no problem. And so I wrote it and filed it and whatever, didn't think twice about it. And then the next morning I, I woke up to an email. It was from Luke Thomas. At that time Luke curated all of the Espionation MMA site. And uh, it was a very, I always joke about this with Luke now, but it was a very nasty email <laughs> of basically, I'll summarize, basically just stay in your lane 
and don't write on my don't write on my portal. <laughs> uh, I, I figured there was two ways I could approach this. One, be very aggressive, or two, try to be parlayed into something. So I kind of just took the latter approach and wrote him some email of just like you know, hey, I, I just graduated college. I kind of realized that college doesn't prepare you for real life at all. Uh, I really right. enjoy mixed martial arts. If you have any, if you ever need anybody to write about it in any capacity, I, I would be happy to do it. And that, that was kind of it. I mean, he, he hit me back up and I ended up joining a website with him and Nate Wilcox and Jonathan Snowden and Tommy Myers. It was a very brief website called MMA Nation. Right. And I was just the news guy there for a while. And uh, I, I eventually we... SB Nation bought out MMA fighting and they were able to take on me and Luke. And <laughs> it was really right place, right time. I was supremely lucky to be given that opportunity at such a young age. But uh, I feel like, I don't know, I, I'm very grateful as well that it worked out as it did. I love that it started with an angry email and an angry exchange with Luke Thomas. I have a very similar <laughs> introduction with Luke battling over, it was back in his bloody elbow days, um, taking shots at Bleacher Report before Bleacher Report kind of grew and improved and was very much just a lot of junk and then a few good writers. Um, yeah. I like to think I was one of the few good writers. Got into it with him and was like, hey, let's just put your guys against our guys and we'll have have some fun posting some stuff and see what people think. And met him in Toronto at UFC 129, I believe, when I came upon him and he recognized who I was and went to introduce myself. I got the like, look at this motherfucker right here in that big, deep booming voice of Luke Thomas. that was followed by a laugh and a handshake and it's all good now, but it, uh, it is crazy. The roads we take to get into this. And as you said, very much a niche sport where there isn't that outside of Dave, who is very much the guy that has been doing this from the get go. And and the guy we all turn to and look to of like, I was reading your stuff in the observer way back when, yeah. but it really has been a way that a lot of us just kind of, we fell into it and it became, this is my passion. This is what I want to do. But I think the thing that stands out in that for yourself and for some people that have been able to make this a career is the passion is the energy and effort that you put into it. Um, as I said off the top, you are one of the guys that I think is the most talented in this industry. I like to think that you're underrated. Not enough people give you some give you some recognition and some props. Uh, people would know a lot of your long form stuff, and and I wanted to actually talk to you a little bit about what you've got in the pipeline because I know you mentioned as we were getting ready that there's something else coming out pretty soon. But what are some of the favorite stories you've worked on, and what was the hardest interview you've ever sat through? Because I know we all have those moments where it's like this is just torture how am i going to turn this into a story well first of all thank you that you're you're way too kind that was that was very nice of you say uh I, the hard you said the hardest interview is yeah, that the, just the most difficult the one that like you sat there and you you prepped it you researched it you got ready thought you had the perfect questions to get you know some some good conversation going and you just got stonewalled or you know, it just fell flat. Yeah. And there's so many examples of that. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's weird because I think a lot of, especially when you look at like fight week type of stuff, things that right. you're doing while guys are cutting weight, those are always, the <laughs> unless it's the very rare type of like a Diaz or a McGregor who's going to give you good no ma- gold no matter what. I think a lot of those guys just want to get in and get out. And right. it's very hard to get good stuff from them. 
Um, in, in regards to um, uh, difficult interviews, though, I always, and of late, I've found that um, talking to, I've had to do it several times over the past year, is just talking to wives or parents of fighters who have recently passed away or just any anybody who, you know, talking to, to, to loved ones of, of people who who passed away. That's always the hardest I, I, I've found. I mean, it takes a lot of tact and uh, preparation to get those right. And it's very right. easy kind of uh, for the whole conversation to turn askew really quickly. Um, and and it, it's, I don't know, it's just difficult in general to, to talk about something so emotionally uh, impactful, especially with someone who you're just this guy who's calling them over the phone. And, and meanwhile, this is their whole world that got shattered. And you don't really have much to do with it. You're just trying to get you know, asking questions about it, but without trying too much. It's a very weird, uh, very weird line to toe, like a very strange balance to reach in that. Um, also, just in a completely different way, I find that, uh, I mean, once I did like, a, guys with really thick accents, like once I did a phoner <laughs> with uh, Andrea Vlosky, and I swear to God, I will never make that mistake again. Like that dude's man accent is manageable when he's right in front of you, and right. you can see what he's saying <laughs> when it's over the phone and you're trying to understand what the hell that guy's saying it's almost unintelligible i think him and chuck congo i were the two people who over the past couple of years i've done phoners with and it's just like i can't use any of this shit <laughs> sitting here trying to transcribe it and i have no idea what he said yeah it's it's unfortunate and it's one of the weird things that people sometimes don't necessarily recognize and and i agree with you a hundred percent on the fight week stuff it's why I try to stay out of like media day scrums for the most part because we've either talked to the guys before or they don't really have anything much they want to say. I'll go to the guys that aren't, you know, main eventers and grab some guys that are really kind of engaged in that moment and up for that moment more yeah. than I'll go to like the last fight I was at was the John Jones OSP fight. Didn't need to go talk to John, had talked to him. We're good. I know what he's going to say. Let me go talk to Yair Rodriguez and Andre Feely and kick back with them and get some good stuff from them. The other part, you're you're 100% right, the accent thing. Mine is, my toughest of late is Leon Rocky Edwards, who I think is a very solid fighter, good up-and-comer. I talked to him at like 5 a.m. my time or our time before I was taking a flight. I believe it was to head down to UFC 194. So it was super early in the morning. I had prepped it, was ready to go. And honestly, just every answer was at most four words. <laughs> and it just is so, like, you try to pry with the follow-up. You try to pull and can you elaborate on that? And there's just nothing. And it's like, you know, I'm going to try to figure this out. Have yeah. a great, and you just, like, you don't ever want to just be completely out and say, you know what, we're done. See you later. But you sit there knowing, oh, my yeah. God, I got up at five o'clock in the morning. I have to be on a plane in three hours. And this is this is what I got. I have a hundred words to transcribe for a thousand word story. And that's the thing, too, because you in those situations, you know, very quickly, like within the <laughs> five minutes, you're like, oh, shit, this is going to be this is I'm not going to get anything from right. this. But you kind of have to keep going, going through the motion. I know exactly what you mean. Those are those moments where Thomas Gervasi, editorial director at UFC.com, one of my bosses, one of my mentors, does the like, this is where you prove yourself. Because if you can turn that poor interview into a story that works 
Yeah. That, those are the real chops. I think that is something you have clearly shown yourself capable of doing, as well as some of these long forms. Um, being Canadian, of course, I'm partial to the story about the guys from London and Team Tompkins. Yeah. Uh, the Jose Aldo piece that we talked about twice last year was phenomenal. Um, of those ones that you've worked on and those bigger stories that you get to dive into more, what has been the one that really resonated for you that you really... Obviously, you're proud of all of them, but what was the one that you were like, you sat down, you sent it in, and you were like, you know what? I nailed that thing. Yeah. I honestly think um, the the Sean Tompkins one is probably, I think I'm most proud of that than anything I've done so far in my career. Like, I, I, I've never, I felt so weirdly emotionally attached to that piece by the time I was done, um, because it took so much, so long. Like, that was a process of over six months. And just talking to all of these guys about, like, I only met Sean once ever. Right. It was very, very brief, but I felt so close to him by the end of it. I don't know. It, it was a very weird dynamic, but I felt so damn proud of that piece. And then also, I think the Aldo one, I, I love I love doing these oral histories. They're my favorite thing in the world. And if I could just do one thing, I would do a bunch of these. Right. Uh, and I And the way that thing came together, like, I had to go out and just find my own artist. I had to kind of plan all this myself and I feel like it really came together in some kind of like really cool moment that a piece that really fit this moment for what it was uh in a really really cool and unique way and so those I was I'm so damn proud of yeah the Aldo piece I remember we talked in July and you're like man I've been working on this thing and now it's just dead and so I'm I'm glad that it got to live I'm glad that it came together for December and it it absolutely was phenomenal Dude, that was that. So you're talking about when Chad Mendes replaced right. Aldo, and I had been working on that <laughs> for like two or three or four months before that. And there was like a one, two week period where we didn't know if Aldo was gonna fight, and Chad might come in, and it was just like this weird give back and forth, back and forth. And I don't think I've ever been more damn stressed out in my entire <laughs> professional life than I was during those two weeks. Like it was soul crushing to find out that that. Because like at the at the time, you got to think back at that moment. Like it, it appeared that Chad Mendes was going to be McGregor's kryptonite, like this American wrestler, right. especially one of that caliber. We've never really seen Connor deal with that, and it just felt like, dude, you just waste <laughs> so much of your money and time and effort. And um, yeah, I can't, that I, that night, I just won at one eighty nine. It was one of the most unbelievable nights in general, and I think for me, <laughs> that helped. Well, and that's one of the things that people like we put out this stuff and like the nature of this sport and Ariel says it all the time covering this beat is the most interesting because there literally is never a day off. Things never stop. Something weird always ends up happening. But like as a writer, you put stuff out and there's lots of times I know you've gone through this. I've gone through it. Everybody has where you're submitting stuff two weeks, three weeks, four weeks in advance and just crossing your fingers and just hoping that, things are going to line up properly, that it's going to still be pertinent. It's still going to make sense. It's going to run as opposed to you having put hours and hours into something that you're just like, Oh, great. Now Chad Mendes is going to out wrestle Conor McGregor. He's never going to fight Jose Aldo and I'm screwed. So (laughs) it's, it's pretty awesome that it got to come together and, and come out. And it really was, it was a phenomenal piece. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. It's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite with Sean Al Shadi of MMA Fighting. 
You mentioned that UFC 189 and UFC 194 where McGregor and Aldo ultimately ended up fighting. One of the things I sent you as we were sort of prepping for this was our our what-the-fuck moments after events, which have become one of the highlights of, of my fight week experiences, just getting into the back, geeking out with you and the rest of the boys about what we just saw. Because last year produced, and even the start of this year, produced a bunch of them. So for you, what makes a great what-the-fuck moment in this sport? Ah, man, that's a good question. <laughs> I... I... I, it, the whole thing started, I think, the first time we ever did that was 189. And I yes. think, you just think back to that night, like, that was one of the most unbelievable nights I've ever experienced in my life. Just being able, just having the privilege to sit there and watch what may be the greatest, you know, night of mixed martial arts ever. Yep. Um, I think we all walked away from that. Like, I, re- I remember, you know, halfway through that main car just turning, because I was right next to Jeremy Botter. And I just remember turning to Jeremy like, dude, this might legitimately be like something magical that we were watching. Like it, it was just unbelievable at the time and things just kept escalating and escalating. You had uh, Thomas Almeida knocking out Brad Pickett. Then you had Dennis Bermudez and Jeremy Stevens. They had that incredible fight. And then obviously Damian Maya just comes out and tools Gunner. And then um, Rory and, and Robbie is just like, what, what the fuck are we watching? <laughs> like, I don't even understand. We're watching Mortal Kombat. I don't get what, what's going on. And I, I, I can only speak for myself, but at the end of that night, it was almost like n- nobody knew what to say, man. Right. Like we were sitting there in a circle afterwards in the media room waiting for the press conference to start just saying the most ridiculous, outlandish, expletive-laden things. Like, I don't even understand what I just watched. What the fuck just happened? It was – I don't know. It will always stick with me that night. Like, it was – I think that – you ask what makes a good what-the-fuck moment, like – I don't think that something like that will ever be replicated. That was just pure magic that we watched. Yeah, that that was a crazy night. I remember sitting next to Matt Erickson of MMA Junkie, and we're going through the first couple prelims and and they we're, were awful. We're, well, and that's the thing, right? We're working our way through the card, and we got kind of looking at each other and thinking, like, did we get? Because it all. I mean, it doesn't always happens, but we are all superstitious, like karma junkies that that think maybe we hyped this up too much and we were too excited and now we're paying. It opened with five straight decisions and outside of maybe the Lewis Smolka Neil Siri fight, they were fairly tepid fights. Like there wasn't a lot that happened. And so it kind of felt like, Oh shit, maybe we screwed this up. And I remember looking at him and being like, listen, dude, Matt Brown is going to close out the prelims and then it's going to be Thomas Almeida and then we've just got craziness at the end. The atmosphere was still great, despite the fact that it had been sort of a slog of a night. Yeah. And then, as you said, just maybe the best six-fight stretch of fights I can remember in UFC history. All finishes, all crazy fights, all impressive performances. To then, as you said, send us back into the media room where it was just like, what did we witness? What did we just... Was this just the best card we've ever seen? We had Sinead O'Connor and Aaron Lewis doing live walkouts. Yeah. It was that just was absolutely bonkers. And then to rep, maybe not replicate it, but come pretty close in December and have it capped with Conor McGregor needing just 13 seconds to end Jose Aldo's decade of dominance was the like, I, I don't even have words for this sport anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just briefly, 
talking going back to the 189 that i think you mentioned another thing the the Sinead o'connor and the aaron lewis that was another like all of the aspect the outside aspects the production i think that was when they debuted the new face the paint it was just all of this and they did like a cool videos video thing on the on the cage yeah. I, I can't i don't know how to explain it but they did a really nice product they had a lot of right really nice production elements and the whole thing just felt special like it felt like something we had never really seen before since like the pageantry of pride right it it was so cool. And then you're right, the, going to December, man, it, I feel like the two things. One, the Irish fans really do make the, the <laughs> Connor fight just feel different. Right. Like I've been, to a, a billion, I've been to a billion different shows at this point, but nothing beats the Irish fans. They really do make it fun. It feels like a big, it feels like a big event when you're at those events and just everyone's going mad and there's songs being played in the throughout the audience and they're stomping and they're clapping and the whole thing is there's beer getting flown everywhere. It's just, it's, there's red panties getting thrown everywhere. It's just great. Um, it is crazy. I mean, they made a Q and a with Holly Holm. Oh man. Just one of the most phenomenal that they were serenading her. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> But then for me, the Alto thing, that blew my mind more than anything else I've ever seen alive. Because that was that came in right after I had spent so many months right. deifying this guy. <laughs> Everyone who he's you know, beaten and just hearing from every single fighter, this is one of the most uh, dangerous motherfuckers <laughs> in the world. And like just hearing on different technical levels and just personal levels of just like how dangerous and how ridiculous this guy is and how badly he's going to beat Connor. And it sold me like I in July, I would have picked Connor over Aldo. And when it came down to it in, in December, I, I picked Aldo because I just I was so deep in at that right. point <laughs> about Aldo's greatness from all of these people that I was interviewing that that never even crossed my mind that that would be a possibility that could happen 13 seconds. Like, yeah. I figured Connor could win by knockout, but that just, to end the fight before it even began was something that just I didn't even think could happen, and it just completely blew my mind in a way that I didn't, I didn't think could happen. Like, I didn't think my mind could be blown, just because I was so ready to see this incredible, epic showdown between these guys, <laughs> and it just, it just didn't happen, man. It was another one of those situations where we just, afterwards in the media room, were just like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. It was one of those fights for me, and I've watched enough fights both live and at home that you always see Twitter sort of do the like, oh, look at all the media sitting there not even watching the fights, looking at their computer. And it's like, one, we have to live blog. We have to keep up with what's going on. But before that fight, as they started to do walkouts, I looked at Danny Austin of the Calgary Sun, my usual travel companion, and just said, dude, and closed my computer because I wanted to soak all of it in because I, like you, thought it was going to be this epic encounter that I, we had waited so long for. It had been a year of buildup, essentially. And I don't think I've ever been happier to have not been on my computer <laughs> because I was actually watching it. And had my computer been open, I'd have been undoubtedly typing something on Twitter about this one's about to jump off and it would have ended and I would have missed it. And I don't think I ever would have been able to forgive myself because it was the most ridiculous ending like I don't want to say it was anticlimactic because it obviously was a thrilling climax but yeah. to go almost 12 months of build-up where these two were at each other's throats did a damn world tour of media and then it ended in 13 seconds with just a perfect step out left hand to the chin 
that we've never seen Aldo dropped like that was just, I'm so happy that I actually sat there and, and saw it happen. Well, it, it, it was dumb. It, it left us all dumbfounded. I mean, I, before the fight started, I remember talking about, there was an Irish fellow uh, from the media who was, who was my next door neighbor on the uh, media row. And I remember talking to him, like I was wearing a suit and I was like, oh man, I bet you they're going to throw beer everywhere. Like I was kind of preparing, like, okay, if Connor wins, like, right. let's figure out some way to protect this suit. Um, <laughs> which is silly, but, but by the time, but when it actually happened, like there was almost like three seconds of silence in the arena right. after, after Connor knocked him out because I did, even the Irish didn't see that coming. Like nobody knew what to do with themselves for like a good silent one. Right. Two, that, that, like, it that was pregnant the- pause where it's just like, you know, we see it in, we see it in movies and, and particularly sports movies where that climactic moment happens and they cut all the sound and you just see what's happening. Yeah. And it was, it was very much like that inside the MGM Grand Garden Arena. You're, you're right. Yeah. And they didn't, and they didn't even end up throwing beer. Like I, I, and maybe they did late afterwards, but like I, Chuck was there with me, Chuck Mendenhall, and he was up in the auxiliary. So he was basically in the stands. And he said the, the scene that unfolded around him after that pause was just like something he had never seen before. Like just guys climbing up to the rafters and like swinging off all these cables and just like the party that erupted was just, I don't know, man. It, the Irish, really. It's the Irish that makes those things fun. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you don't want to give them too much credit because they'll get too excited about themselves. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure Pizzi will relay this. Pizzi Carroll of, of Severe MMA and various other outlets will relay this for them when he gives it a listen. But they absolutely do make it a different experience than when it's just a Vegas fight night or a fight night in other places. It's Keyboard Kamara Podcast, Province Sports Radio, MMA Fighting's Sean L. Shaddy joining me. We were going to talk about Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather, uh, whether you care, whether you think it will happen, whether you would watch. But I think after yesterday's special edition of the MMA Hour with your colleague and fellow Canadian Ariel Helwani and Nathan Diaz, we have to get into that. Um, maybe the best interview in the history of interviews? It's up there. <laughs> it's got to be up there. I asked you as we were getting started and, and wrote the little note down, did you ever think you would have to transcribe Nate Diaz properly using, as you as you pointed out, the phrase creme de la creme? Um, do you think after having watched this that we will get Diaz-McGregor too? Is that still something that you think either Nate or the UFC is pushing for at this point? Or do you think that's disintegrated and and he's now kind of just waiting for whatever big money fight he can get. Um, I think he is waiting for whatever big money fight he can get, but I would be very surprised at this point if we don't get that rematch. Which because it the the we've almost hit a fever pitch of people wanting to see that rematch, rematch which is very strange because when it <laughs> first announced everyone hated it. Like it was universally reviled and no one wanted to see it and now after everything that we've gone through I mean, you were got you were there for one ninety seven, or uh, yeah, one ninety seven. That whole week of of just that that uh, trying to figure out like is Connor, <laughs> is Connor retired? Like, what's going on right now? Why isn't he fighting at UFC two hundred? That whole week really pushed the the wanting for that fight to just some level that I didn't think it was going to reach until I don't know. The whole thing was is so strange, but I would be very surprised at this point if we don't see it because it's just like it's it's easy 
million dollar paper or a million buy pay per view at this point. Like so many people want to see it, and the hype for it will be so extreme by the time it happens. Well, and that is the crazy thing is that it felt like when the fight was first announced, most people in the media said, "Listen, I get why it's happening business wise; it makes sense." But I'm not that interested. We just saw it. It was conclusive. Not that it was an absolute whitewash one way or the other, but it ended. There was a definite end to it. Nate Diaz submitted Conor McGregor in the center of the octagon, took the best he had to offer, and responded. And so it felt like a little bit unnecessary from a sporting side of things, especially given that Conor has the featherweight belt and and is yet to defend it. But as you said, sitting there last month when all of this Conor McGregor retirement stuff starts happening... And then to see Nate Diaz at that press conference and sit there opposite an empty chair and just say, it's Conor McGregor or I'm going on vacation. Like, I didn't want this fight. He pushed for it. Y'all convinced me to do it. I'm ready to go now. So it's him or I'm going back to Cabo. Nate Diaz is now like the dude that that maybe, I don't know that he has as much sway as Conor McGregor. But he's got quite a bit, and and that's a really impressive and interesting thing to see because from that interview yesterday, Nate clearly gets it. Like He clearly understands his value, his worth, and the position he's in now, which I don't know that he maybe did two or three years ago. And I don't think, as he says in the interview, a lot of fighters necessarily understand or grab a hold of the way that he has and the way that Connor has. Absolutely. I mean, he's playing this game right now better than anyone. And it's, it's very strange because I feel like for, for years we've kind of had this idea of Nate Diaz as this lesser Diaz brother. And, and now he's, he's, doing, <laughs> right. he's playing this game better than anyone I've seen. I mean, I'm just going to read this quote and it's probably the best quote ever. I mean, we're entertaining these, the entertainers. Doesn't that make us the creme de la creme? Shouldn't we be paid the fuck out? Why are you fighting for free, you dumb shit motherfucker? <laughs> like, there is so much truth to that. It, aside from how, like, you know, the swear words and stuff, there is so much damn truth to what he's saying. And it's very interesting to see a guy from this position of leverage, because obviously he has so much leverage right now. Um, it's just interesting to see him kind of publicly come out and say these things. Because, again, it's very rare that we see this. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, my colleague Chuck wrote an article today about how basically, it, like, obviously Nate and Connor are fighting each other. But they're also fighting this weird joint battle with the UFC. In right. public. And it's, it's I, I mean, honestly, I don't know if we've ever seen anything like what they're both doing simultaneously at the same, like, against the UFC, kind of in a mutual interest way. It, it, I think a lot of fighters should be watching this very closely, and obviously a lot of, mo- no other fighters are, have the leverage that Connor and, and Nate w- would have right now, but just in general, as a way to play when, when you, that kind of situation comes to your side, like, you don't have to just accept what they give you, like, there's, there's, there's a way to treat this like a business. Well, and first, that quote ends with, that shit gets on my last nerve, which is just the <laughs> perfect way to end exactly what he's saying. Uh, Chuck Mendenhall's piece that is up on MMA fighting is, is phenomenal. I recommend everybody go out and read it. Um, but you're right. This is one of the first times that we've seen a pair of fighters in the position that these guys are in. I don't want to say take a stand because it's not like they're, you know, on strike from the UFC, 
but it's the first time that we've seen guys that we clearly know the UFC is very much keen on getting back in there as quickly as possible, getting them together and reaping the benefits of this rematch, standing kind of, as you said, uniformly and saying, okay, we're up for it, but we are going to be compensated the way that we deserve to be. I think we've got Rory McDonald next month fighting in Ottawa. It's the last fight of his contract. He said also with Ariel, who just continues to get all the scoops forever and ever, um, that he's going to fight out his contract and see what he's worth on the open market because it's it's time for him to get paid. He feels that way as well. I don't, I don't, I think we've always struggled with talk about unions in this sport and, and whether that's something that fighters need. But do you think this moment that we're experiencing now, which I would say has probably been two or three months is going to lead to something more. Do you think we will see more fighters follow Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor's lead and take some of the advice that Nate Diaz freely gave out yesterday on Ariel's show of stop saying you'll fight for free. Stop saying you'll fight whoever. Stop saying you're just happy to be here and understand your worth and get paid what you're worth and be a part of this business because they're getting paid. And as he said... They're sitting there entertaining the entertainers. So shouldn't that make them the creme de la creme? Yeah. I mean, ideally, this would be some form of jumping off point, right? Like that would be that would be the best case scenario is if uh, other, other fighters kind of studied this, use this as a case study and to, to show, you know, why we need to come together. I, I thought that was one of the big things. My big takeaways from the McGregor situation was at, at least initially there was virtually no support for him from the right. fighter community. Like everyone was kind of jumping to to laugh at, oh, look at the UFC, you know, shaming Conor McGregor publicly. Like no one was, ju- no fighters were jumping on McGregor's side. And, and that just goes to show you how fractured this is. Because right. that's a moment in time where you could kind of show some unification. And it just didn't happen. And a lot of people raising their hand to take his spot. Exactly. And say, I'll do it for a tenth of the money. Right. Like, that's exactly the problem. But I, I think it is impo- it's really important and interesting to me that a lot of this has been played out in the public. And that's something that we've never really been privy to before. Like, obviously, right. guys like Randy Couture and other guys in the past, Tito Tees, Louis Zenless, John Fitch, guys have gone through this sort of battle with the OC over different you know, contract clauses and money and just things like that. But it's always been behind closed doors. And Connor and Nate are both taking this into the media. And kind of putting their positions and their platforms out for the fans to understand, and it and it helps. It helps the fa- I think it helps the fan base kind of side with the fighters in a way because it it, was, it always struck me as strange that the fans in back maybe a couple years ago would always you know ninety percent <laughs> of the time side with the billionaires right for the the millionaires and you know the thousandaires like they the fans would always side with the UFC over the fighters, and I don't think that's the case anymore. I think. I think there is value to what Nate and Connor is doing, especially in just taking this public and, and kind of laying it out there so, for the layman to understand. Well, and I think one of the ones that kind of brought it around for a lot of people I know for my occasional co-host on this, Paul Chapman, my managing editor at the province, that really got him kind of hang on, wait a minute, press pause, was that Rory McDonald made $60,000 for fighting Robbie Lawler in a fight that Dana White called the the best fight of ever 
um, where he took so much punishment, where it was such a phenomenal fight. And then he goes home with $60,000 and he's still got to pay taxes on that. And he's got to pay his coaches and his corner men and, and, and things like that. And so I think that was the first one for a lot of people that made them press pause. And then to see sort of at the end of last year, as they're pulling in these great big gates, resetting records in Las Vegas, Connor's talking about the amount of money he's making to now see, as you said, it play out a little bit more in public that people are getting a little better understanding and we're not seeing as much of the, well, these guys are getting paid. They don't have to sign the contract if they don't want it. We're seeing more of a like, listen, yes, they're getting paid, but they should be paid more. There is that uniform agreement from everybody that, listen, these guys should just be paid more. You can't be a multi-billion dollar industry and have guys fighting for essentially peanuts. And so I agree that it's going to be going to be interesting to see where this goes and how this particular fight plays out in terms of settling this dispute but also where this fight goes in terms of the the money side of things for fighters i'll exit this this piece with did you ever think that nate diaz would be one of the guys responsible for this it's crazy man the turnaround Within, I think, what, when was uh, Fox? So that was December. Within, from December to March, in a, like a four-month span, Nate Diaz completely turned around his entire career in right. so many different ways. It's so, and I think that was one of the things he was talking about Wednesday on, on the MMA Hour was just the outpouring of like support and appreciation this guy has gotten over the past few months has been almost, it's so cool to see, but it's almost overwhelming in a sense of just people being happy for him. And that's very cool because he's right. I mean, this is a guy who's been doing this. When did he get into the OFC? I don't even – when was Tough Five? Like 2007? Yeah, 2000, 2007 was his UFC debut against Manny Gambarian. Almost a decade, man. Almost a decade. And just now he's finally at a place where he's able to – because he was saying these same type of things two years ago and everyone was dismissing it as like, oh, Nate, just win a fight. You, you, you know, one and two in your past three or just whatever. It, and it's just – it's it's very cool to see him in a place where people are actually listening to what he's saying now as opposed to, you know, just dismissing it as someone who's bitter that they haven't been able to win. Well, and to think that that Fox fight that you mentioned in December against Michael Johnson, a lot of us thought that Nate was sort of the guy that was being brought in as a name, but a guy that's expected to lose to Michael Johnson, who was on a nice run. Nate hadn't fought in a year. He looked out, I mean, came in overweight when he fought Rafael Dos Anjos a year previous, not too far from your home in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. And it just sort of felt like, yeah, right, they're using the Nate Diaz name. Then he goes out there, looks great, drops that great promo that no one heard live on Fox because it was just one long dump button. <laughs> um, and then goes out and ends up getting the fight with Conor McGregor and beating, like, it's just been such a crazy whirlwind. It is, It really is unexpected, but as you said... Great to see for a guy that is more than a decade deep in this game and and finally getting his due. I mean, man, you go back to take it back to 2014, right after Nate loses to Hatfield Dos Anjos at UFC on Fox and just gets blown out of the water and you know right. he's in overweight and the whole. I remember that whole entire week. I talked to Nate a couple times and just everything that he was talking about was very negative because that was kind of the aura around him. Yep. He, he was disgruntled. He wanted to renegotiate, and that was right after the needle mover comment came out and he was you know the ufc was not wanting to renegotiate and if you would have told me then in 2015 
that two years from now, less than two years from now, Nate Diaz will co-headline the second highest selling pay-per-view in UFC history. Like that, that's unbelievable, man. And he will be one of the highest paid, biggest stars in this sport after having been, I mean, that fight with Dos Anjos seemed to me like it was a, I haven't fought in a year. I need to make some money. So I'm going to just go do this. And if I lose, so what? At least I get my show. At least I get my show purse. To now yeah. be where he's at, where it's like, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to wait and get the best fight I can get for the most money because I deserve it and I've earned it. So you guys can just wait for me is is crazy. Yeah, and I, I, I remember for that Dos Anjos fight, um, so that was with the Phoenix Commission. It took me like a month and a half to get the salaries back from that fight. But when I got him back, I think Nate Diaz, I don't want to say something wrong, but I think he made like $16,000 or $18,000 for that fight because he got fined for for missing the weight and he was already right. on 20 and 20. And it's just like you look at a guy who's been in this sport for almost 10 years at the highest level fighting for titles on Fox, headlining shows on Fox, and he's making 16 or 18 grand. Like, I understand why he's frustrated, man. That's that's insane. Yeah, it's it's crazy. If I can make more money in a year than you make for jumping in, like from working at home in sweatpants, doing this, hanging out with my dog, than you make for going into a cage and fighting another human being, that's just that's not that's not right. Yeah, it's not right. It's it it needs to change, and I I honestly think it will. I think we will see this whole situation lead to. Listen, I don't think UFC fighters are suddenly going to get paid the F out the way that Nate Diaz wants them to. Um, but I do think we will see some changes as a result of this, or at least I hope we do. Yeah. I mean, ideally that would be, that would be a very cool way for this to play out. <laughs> it's the keyboard Kimura podcast. He's Spencer Kite, Sean L. Shaddy of MMA fighting. We have covered off a bunch of stuff, so we may as well get to the matter at hand this weekend, Sunday night at the Mandalay Bay event center in Las Vegas, UFC fight night, 88 UFC Fight Night Almeida versus Garbrandt UFC Fight Night Las Vegas there are far too many names for these shows <laughs> nonetheless this is a phenomenal fight card I was excited for this one as they started announcing bouts uh, had Cody on the show earlier in the week he's super pumped about it Thomas Almeida is one of those dudes that I'm tuning in for no matter what I assume he is for you as well and I assume that your excitement level for Sunday night is pretty much on par with mine at, at about 11 or 12. Oh, absolutely, man. It's, it's a loaded card. And it's, it's cool because it's one of those cards where it's not a lot of big names. But it, it, for people who understand the sport and know the sport and follow it, you can go through matchup by matchup, and it's just, that's a great fight. That's a great fight. That's going to be fireworks. Right. It's up and down the card. This main event, to me, is a perfect bit of matchmaking. And I wrote a piece earlier in the week about the Tony Ferguson, Michael Chiesa fight that's coming up later this summer in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I think this one fits as well where Thomas Almeida is ranked in the top 10, a guy that's making his way up the rankings. One of the most feared and hyped prospects in the division, if not the whole organization and, and Cody's outside of the rankings, but has a little bit of that steam as well. It feels like a great matchup because no matter who wins, you get a 24-year-old, going to be 25 in the summer, that's moving up, that becomes a contender in a division which has really become really interesting and, and built some good depth over the last year. How do you see this playing out? Like, 
I think this can't be anything but fireworks. Would you agree? And and do you lean either way in this side? I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's cool that it's happening now. I think a lot of fans historically have always kind of wanted, not wanted to see prospects fight each other on their way up on their concurrent rises. Um, and I, I think this is, I, I actually like it. Like I like the idea of figuring out who's the better prospect. That's a cool, because it, because it, 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 it elevates whoever wins this fight to a, to a level that, you know, fighting uh, one of the more shop-worn veterans of the division wouldn't. Um, so I really like it. And I, I like the idea of just where, with the stakes at, at play for the, I mean, both these guys are undefeated. Um, but man, I can't, I can't even really get a read on it. <laughs> I, I remember sitting obviously cage side for UFC 189 and, and watching Thomas Almeida just laying that flying knee on Brad Pickett. And it was just like, that's burned in my brain. Right. Of just Brad Pickett crumbling to the canvas and the sound that made. Like that, oh God, Thomas Almeida is just future of Brazilian MMA, man. And Cody Garbrandt looks spectacular in his last few fights. So I really have no read on it at all, to be honest. Yeah, I was fortunate to be in Montreal for Thomas Almeida's pay-per-view debut against Yves Jabouin and went into that fight thinking, all right, Yves a tough veteran. I'm not sure about this Brazilian kid that, yeah, he's been running through dudes on the regional circuit, but he just went to a decision with Timmy Gorman, who to me wasn't quite UFC caliber and was getting a shot because he kind of washed out of the ultimate fighter. So let me just see what happens here. And I believe I picked Yves Jabouin thinking the veteran will, I'll do the right things. And you see some holes in Thomas Almeida and he went out there and absolutely lit Yves Jabouin up in Montreal. And from that moment on, it was, I'm with this dude. I'm, I'm good. He's yeah, there are some holes and he takes some shots, but he returns fire even better. And then to to throw him in there with Cody, I'm with you. I think this is the right time to pair these prospects off. I think there comes a point where you just have to figure out which guy moves forward yeah, and still afford whoever loses enough time to kind of rebuild themselves where they're not too far along in the progression of things that it's like there's there's not many fights left for them or they get stuck in another super tough matchup because everybody's in the top five and that's all that's left. I haven't figured out which way I'm leaning either. Obviously, I have a friendship of, of sorts with Cody Nolov, having covered his sort of relationship with Maddox Maple and, and gotten to know him a bit over this last year. But I just, I can't see this Memorial Day card not ending with fireworks. And, and that excites me. Yeah. It also starts off, or the second fight of the night is in the bantamweight division, Aljamain Sterling and Brian Caraway. I got a, I got a chance to talk to Aljo yesterday um, for a piece that'll be out in the paper on Friday. This is a fight that he doggedly pursued. This is a fight that he wanted. He's very much in that up-and-coming prospect mix as well. It's a different fight than the main event because we have a, a prospect and, and more of a veteran. But I think this is another one of those perfect pairings. So shout out to Sean Shelby for for doing it right, for getting this one together because Brian Caraway didn't seem all that interested but is this the right fight for Aljamain Sterling to you at, at this point of his career looking to take that next step forward? I think it's the perfect fight, uh, to be honest. And I mean, Aljo's kind of said the same thing where it's just like both these guys have a very similar style and a very grappling heavy style. And I think it's going to make for very fun, uh, you know, scrambles and very fun exchanges in general. And, and when, when it comes to Aljo, I mean, I always like and I'm always championing the, the idea of a guy who can play plot his own course and kind of like call for what he wants. Right. And then when he, 
and then it's very fascinating to see when he does get exactly what he's asked for, what he can do with it. To me, that's a storyline that's so easy to follow, and it's so interesting always to kind of see the, the maturation of somebody like that. So I'm really looking forward to this. I think that's probably my mo- the fight I'm looking forward to the most on the entire card. Yeah, it, it's definitely up there for me. And I asked him about that, as you said, plotting his own course and, and calling for this. Did he feel that there's a little added pressure to go out there and, and produce and to sort of back up and justify setting his sights on Brian Caraway. And he was like, no, no added pressure, but he, he thinks he's the best grappler in the division. I want to go out and prove that that's me. If I can't beat Brian Caraway at this stage of my development, then I don't stand a chance against the Dominic Cruises and the TJ Dillashaws. So this is the dude that I, I want to test myself against this is the bar that I need to clear, and that's why he went after it. And, and it makes this such an entertaining and compelling fight on Sunday night. I know some people are kind of salty on it being on Fight Pass, but I've been saying it for months on this platform, on Keyboard Kimura, on Twitter. If people haven't figured out that Fight Pass is, one, worth the $10 investment every month, or whatever it is, because I think you could probably get some kind of deal on it for a six-month subscription or a year subscription... But two, the UFC is going to continue using this platform and trying to build its subscription base. So if you don't want to miss out on fights like this, spend the $10 and get it because these fights are going to continue showing up there. And it makes perfect sense to me from a business side of things. Well, also, I mean, I was I was like you, maybe, you know, a lot like a lot of people like I, I was very iffy when they announced this for fight pass you know like that's a little bit of a punishment type of thing for what he did but now i completely agree with what everyone's saying in regards to the, i mean how many aljo's done more media than almost everybody else in the card and then the ufc is pushing that fight more than almost every other fight on the card like there there's uh, a ton of ufc content out there about aljamain and brian and this fight and so that's that's I, I, the idea of fighting in this fight pass headliner isn't what it was two years ago or one year ago. Like it's it's there. It is a very real thing that they're making a conscious effort to promote the hell out of. So it isn't like a demotion. It seems, and you know, and you talk to fighters, a lot of guys actually kind of prefer it now because obviously with the Reebok money, they're all making the same sponsorship right. money. Whether you're on Fight Pass or you're on the main card, and so the idea that you can just go there and get your fight done quick, and then have the rest of the night to kind of relax and watch fights and not have to just sit in the locker room and be nervous. Right. You know, I guys prefer that, to be honest. Yeah, it's true. And, and one of the things Aljo said, and, and it'll definitely make the piece tomorrow, is we get to go out there and set the tone, walk into the back to, to be done and do our medicals and get back in the dressing room and look at Thomas Almeida and Cody Garbrandt and say, now it's your turn to try to trump what we just did because we set the bar, we showed what bantamweights could do and I honestly think whichever of these four sort of emerges with the best performance, they're the one that's going to be in that range of, of in that title conversation, if not fighting for the belt because TJ Dillashaw and Rafael Asensauer probably a step ahead, but yeah. in that step right behind them fighting a Michael McDonald or fighting you know Uriah Faber or Dominic Cruz, whichever one loses that title fight next weekend – and that's an important thing. That's a pivotal thing for these fighters and for the UFC. So it's it's definitely something that as fans, you want to tune in and see it because you're going to know these guys and you're going to hear about these guys next time out. This is your chance to get introduced to them on free TV on Sunday night and, and for a Fight Pass subscription. 
yeah. which is just if you're a fight fan and you're a fight nerd, I don't know why you don't have it because to kill an afternoon just watching random pride fights and random <laughs> fights from wherever is is so much fun. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because you look at this Sunday's card; it's effectively a bantamweight showcase right. of like all of this young upcoming talent. It's just crazy to look at it. Like two years ago, we were looking at bantamweight. I mean, even a year ago, we were looking at bantamweight. Like, man, there's not a lot there outside of like the top few. And at this point, that that might be one of the most stacked deep divisions in the UFC. Like, there is so much young, hungry, up and coming talent. And then you have all these guys who who are fleeing from flyweight too, like a Dodson or a Lineker. It, it's just a fascinating division at this point. Well, and a guy that was sort of at the at the forefront of all of it for three or four years. Now moving up to featherweight, former bantamweight champ Henan Barrow. This is another one of those fights on this card that I am so interested to see because I want to see just how much the weight cut impacted his performance, what he can be like up that 10 pounds. Jeremy Stevens is a guy that has been around forever, super durable. We talked about him earlier in the show, getting that crazy standing in place, jump knee finish of Dennis Bermudez last summer. Again, I think this is, you know, tip the tip of the cap to the UFC matchmakers for giving Barrow a perfect test to see where he fits in the 145 pound division right off the bat. Yeah, I agree with you. Cause it, when we were watching Henry Barrow at Bantam, it seemed like, I mean, obviously he was doing well in his first few fights. He became interim champion. Uh, he became the real champion. And but by the last few fights, it seemed like uh, it just it wasn't the same head route. He seemed like a very lethargic, sluggish, slow version of himself. And you have to wonder how much of that uh, contributed just from the way cuts, concept of the city. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because, as you said, he got into those fights prior to his first fight with TJ Dillashaw. He just was absolutely torching guys and looked almost unbeatable obviously we know no one in this sport is unbeatable save for maybe john jones and demetrius johnson at flyweight but then it just he just didn't look the same over those last three fights including his win over mitch gagnon who had some success against him it wasn't a great fight and so i i'm very curious to see if just that process of depleting his body to get down to 35 and now not having to go through that and sort of maintaining a healthier weight brings back some of that Burrell that we saw early because early in his UFC career, I still remember the fight with Brad Pickett where he stunned Pickett who didn't go down, but was kind of wobbling in the center of the cage. And Burrell just jumped on his back like a spider monkey and choked him out in about 13 seconds. Yeah, Crazy performance. I think he still has it in him. But Stevens is a is a very worthy guy and a guy that if you don't, he is going to make you pay. We all sort of still remember Jeremy Stevens owns one of the nastiest finishes that I can remember over the reigning lightweight champion, Rafael Dos Anjos. So a dude that you don't want to trifle with when you get in there on Sunday night. Yeah. Yeah, and Burrell, I mean, we we almost send this guy off to death at this point. Right. But he's 29. Like, he's still... <laughs> He's still so young in his career, and uh, I, I kind of like the idea that he waited as long as he did. I mean, he has, he's been out since last July, right. and I feel like after after two really because he took those TJ fights kind of back to back almost. I feel like after fights like that, like it's very good for fighters to take a long extended break to kind of just let everything recover. 
And so I'm, I'm really excited to see how he adjusts to this new weight. Because obviously, I mean, like we were saying, he was just looking like haggard <laughs> by the end of his bantamweight run. He did not look like the young up-and-coming guy that we all thought he was. Before I let you get out of here, before we jump off this event, is there anyone else that you're sort of looking forward to seeing? Anyone else that piques your interest from this card? Which is, as we said off the top, stacked from top to bottom, really entertaining, good quality fights throughout. Yeah. Uh, Jorge Masvidal versus Lorenz Larkin is fire. <laughs> that, that, that fight is going to be so good. I, I love watching both those guys. And also, I'm really excited about the return of Tarek Safadine. I know he might be a little injured and he kind of had a will-he-won't-he he situation going on for a little bit. Right. But, I mean, him versus Rick Story, that's going to be a great fight. And it's just good to see that guy being able to get in there because it seems like ever since uh, his, his strike force run, like ever since he came to the OC, he's been very snake-bitten and his appearances have been... Few and far between, so it's good to see him getting some run. Yeah, that's one of the ones for me. Both guys fought on October 4th, 2014. Rick Story kicking off the day in, in Sweden with a win over Gunnar Nelson. Tarek Safadin closing out the day with a loss to Rory McDonald in Halifax. Combined, they have one fight since. It's nice to see them back in action and fighting each other because I think they're both still contenders. The other one for me, I'm for whatever reason, I'm still curious about Sarah McMahon I see the physical tools, I see the strength, and I just think if she could put it together, there's still something there. So I'm interested to see if she can do that against Jessica I, who is another one of those proven but not quite championship-level fighters in the women's bantamweight division. Maybe she proves me wrong on that statement, but that's a fight I'm definitely looking forward to. Yeah, and Cleveland has momentum. And Cleveland has momentum. They're getting their... First event, Stipe Miocic winning the title will defend his belt at UFC 203 in September against Alistair Overeem. The Cavs absolutely trucked the Raptors last night. Uh, it was done it, by by the half. It was done by the first quarter. It was pretty much done by the first quarter. It's true. I I don't I can't even get into it. This is the, like I, I I had it on to the half, and we sat down for dinner, my wife and I, and she was like, "Do you want to watch this?" And I was like, "Why? It's done." Like, nothing is going to change here. Let's put on a movie. Let's put on a show. Let's just chill, whatever. So, going to be interesting to see what happens tomorrow at, tomorrow at the ACC. What's going on with the Raptors, man? I do not understand how this series played out at all. Like, home, field, home court advantage should not be this important. And this, this is the, I mean, this is the thing with the Raptors, man. I've, I've said it all year, and, and people want to think I'm a hater and whatever, but to be a jump shooting team, you have to have good jump shooters. <laughs> you have to have guys that can knock down 15, 18, 20 footers reliably that are tough shots, open shots, whatever. I think Toronto's at their best. We saw it in game four. Drive into the rim. That gives you the driving kicks. That gives you some easy looks because Kyrie Irving isn't going to play defense and LeBron James can't defend everybody and Cleveland has no interior defense. So getting to the basket opens things up. Hopefully they figure that out because it'll, it, I just hope they get to a game seven. I don't think that they will necessarily beat the Cavs. I just don't want to see their season end on their home court again because they have been so close. So get one more win, then go to Cleveland and whatever happens, happens. If you had to put your life on it, do you feel like they're going to be able to do that? Do you think like they're going to be able to win on on game six? Not to the point that I will put my life on it. 
No. <laughs> not to the point that I will put my, I think they play better, but I also think that they're, I think Cleveland has a level that they can get to that Toronto doesn't necessarily. And I think Toronto is a team that once they get rattled, the opening quarter is so important and even the opening five minutes. If Toronto can get out there and establish a rhythm and get a little bit of momentum and confidence, I think they can play with anybody. But the minute they get behind and things aren't falling and they're not getting some calls, they're a team that just kind of feels like they're shook. And so the first five minutes of of tomorrow's game will be important. I will be watching very closely, sitting on my couch, just in silence with my dog, hoping that they get to a game seven. I'm I'm living vicariously through you. I've my team got the fourth pick in a three-player draft, which is pretty <laughs> epitome of, of what the hell like the Phoenix Suns will finish like. But you've got two lottery picks. You've got some yeah. young talent. Devin Booker looks like a real player. Uh, Alex Len had a little bit of moments this year. Reminds me a little bit of Jonas Valanciunas, so give him another year or two. Could get there. But, but yeah. I, yeah, sure. We have <laughs> enough young talent to keep us at the number <laughs> For the next five years, I can't wait for that. At some point, another Ben Simmons or LeBron James or somebody has got to come through the draft that you guys can get. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not keeping my hopes up, man. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I will let you get out of here. Before I do, I want to thank you for coming on the show and, and doing an hour with us. It was absolutely great. Let people know what's coming down the pipeline. Let people know where they can follow you and check out all your stuff because, and I don't just say this because you are on here with me, it is absolutely phenomenal. It is always top quality and it is very much worth people sitting down to read it. Well, thank you, man. I, I, again, I appreciate it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Alshadi because Shaheen Alshadi does not, <laughs> it's already taken by a guy who doesn't use it. Um, and you can read me on MMA Fighting. I should have a long form out hopefully friday unless some kind of crazy news comes out um if not maybe the week after but hopefully soon i appreciate you doing it man like i said hopefully we cross paths here i'm sure we will be spending international fight week aka hell week in las vegas together geeking out about fights lots of great action coming up then and uh, i look forward to it man i appreciate you coming on and doing this until next week guys i am always e spencer kite follow me on twitter at spencer kite thank you for listening and enjoy the fights this weekend. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash keyboard Kimura. Kimura.